So today, I thought I would talk about the business of Buddhism, the business of Buddhism, uh, and, and my journey as an independent contractor. <laughs> so in 1993, I moved into the International Buddhist Meditation Center as a resident to prepare to become ordained as an American Buddhist monk. And, and our center, literally, the IBMC, is one of the only centers that really sort of focused on getting some homegrown American monks and nuns ordained and out into the world. If you think about Buddhism, you usually don't think about people that look like me. And that's life, you know. Uh, but the Buddha said, my teachings have not taken root until people born in that country are ordained and teaching in their language. So it's really important to teach Buddhism in English in America because most Americans only speak English. I shouldn't say most, but a lot of them, and I include myself. When I was in high school, I took German for a while because I have a strong German background. And I lasted about a half a year. And I just said, I can't do this. This is, German is really hard. Besides speaking it, trying to spell it. Crazy. So I just thought, I'll just deal with English and do the best I can. And it's proved, you know, to be challenging sometimes. But it, it works for me. And most of the people I talk to speak English at some level. And, and so it works okay. Uh, and then if they don't speak English, I say to them, I only speak English. And they look at me like, what did he just say? You know? <laughs> What's he talking about? So anyway, so I moved in in 1993. And I was a postulant. And we had a lot of training to go through and meditation to do and retreats to do and and sort of learning the business, if you will. I was like 43 or 44. So I was sort of midlife if I lived in my 80s. And, and I had only worked for businesses and, and, you know, brick and mortar. And you go to work and you have a boss and you have a social security number and they give you a check. And sometimes you like it there and sometimes you don't. But you always got to leave at the end of the day. And then once a year or so, you got to take a vacation away from work. So now I'm moving into a situation where uh, I live where I work and I get no vacations because now I have a lifestyle rather than a job. So it took a little while to sort of get that in my head. Okay, so what am I going to be doing? I, well, I wake up in the morning and I'm, I'm working. And I go to bed at night, and I don't have to work because now I'm going to sleep. And then I wake up, and I'm, and and so during the day I would meditate and and uh, and that kind of stuff. And then in 1994, I took my novice ordination. I became an official American Buddhist monk, and the center invited me to work for them. And I thought, well, this is cool. I can quit my job, and I can be a, a Buddhist monk and live at this center. But then I got concerned. I said to myself, how am I going to live? You know, what am I going to do for money? And, and um, in order to be a monk, the tradition says you can't have any debt. Okay, so I didn't have any debt at the time. I was debt-free. I didn't have a car either. I had a motorcycle. Uh, but there were still things to pay. You, you still got to buy food and maybe a pair of socks once in a while and stuff like that. So I went into negotiations with Reverend Karuna Dharma, the abbess of the center. 
And she said, well, this is what we're going to do for you. We're going to give you a job. You're going to be the residential manager. And you will interview a prospective, uh, prospective residents, see what you feel about that, if they're going to be good or bad, pay their rent or not. Then we're going to have something called the Resident Action Committee, RAC. And they will also interview the potential residents as well. Now, we have five houses uh, in Koreatown, and they're old. Most of them are like 1900 to 1920, craftsmen, you know. And so they're old and creaky, and the wind goes right through them. Um, but we rent rooms. We're in the business to rent rooms. And, and I think Venerable Tik Tianan, the founder of our center, was very wise because his students wanted him to start a center. But then the idea is, how can we maintain a center? How much does it cost to keep five houses going? You know, besides property tax, even though we're... 401, and I don't know if that applies, property tax, but there's still maintenance, and there's still like a lot of other things that happen to old houses that you have to keep fixing. And then you have electricity, and you have gas, and you have sewage, and you have trash pickup, and so all those things keep entering into the picture, as you know, because you live in a community as well. So how the hell are you going to pay for all that stuff? And so the founder said, we'll charge rent. We'll have people live here and pay rent. And the rent will allow us to continue in the business of Buddhism. Okay? And so I, I thought to myself, after I started working there, what a great idea to charge rent. And you don't have to charge a lot because it's a room and shared bathroom and shared kitchen so you can give everybody a discount compared to other L.A. places to live, which turn out to be really expensive. So back then, you could live at our center for 300 a month, back in the 90, early 90s, 300 a month, 300 to 600, depending on how big your room was and what house it was in, and some houses were better than other houses, but you didn't realize that until you started living there. And then you had all these people to deal with, and the people to deal with at a meditation center can really challenge you. Because who the hell moves in to a meditation center? What kind of person is driven to do that? And you would think to yourself, hey, I bet all these meditators, quiet, contemplative, wise, serene, will just be the fantastic residents we've been looking for. But then when you charge $300, you get a lot of people who say, that's about all I can afford. I've never meditated in my life and don't want to. I just want a place to live, you know? Is it okay to turn up my radio as loud as I want? You, know? you go, oh, man. So it was really challenging to be the residential manager to begin with. But now we get back to how am I going to live? So Reverend Karuna said, we're going to give you a stipend every month. Uh, but we're not going to pay any taxes for you. Social Security tax, you're going to have to cover that yourself. And that's the self-employment tax, as they like to call it. So in my old jobs, the, usually the, the business would pay half your Social Security, and then you pay the other half. But this was full. So we're not going to pay your Social Security, but we will give you a stipend. And we will give you health insurance. Now, at the time, in my early 40s, I felt healthy and not prone to sickness. And I thought, well, I, it's nice, but I, don't, I probably won't need it, you know. And, and then I started to, to, to see how much it cost. Because all the staff and the monks and nuns that lived at the center we're getting Kaiser Permanente group health insurance, which turned out to be really good because I found out the older you get, the more prone you are to sickness, disease, and laziness. 
And so I'm going, okay, it's nice to have that as a backup if I need it, you know. And then she said, and if you find yourself out in the world giving Dharma talks and they want to donate to you, it's okay to keep the money that they donate, but you can't ask for donations. Other people can ask for donations for you, but you can't ask for donations and you can't set a price. You know, so sometimes you give a Dharma talk and they give you a bag of apples. And that's per- perfect, you know? Food is good. That's nice. I work for food. Okay. <laughs> you know? And sometimes they give you money. And I tell you what, the first 10 years of my Dharma talks, I didn't generate a lot of income uh, because I didn't have any good stories yet. You know? And I didn't know how to present the stories in a way that might be interesting and useful and educational. So I just talked about stuff and... And I sort of recited the, some of the sutras and what I learned about Buddhism, like going to a class. And, and it, it, they were nice. They didn't say too much about how good or bad I was. You know? And then it started to click. I started to actually get invited to speak at high schools, which was a lot of fun because they have the best questions. And sometimes the schools would give me a check. They give me like a $50 check for speaking at a high school class. I went, wow, 50 bucks for speaking to a bunch of students. How can I ask for anything more out of life? You know? And then sometimes you'd actually get maybe a couple hundred, which would buy lunch for the whole month, you know, and maybe a couple gallons of gasoline. These days it's getting a little harder, <laughs> a little more expensive. So I started to do that, and I started to get a lot of people saying, you know, we'd like to have you come and speak. And, and so the stipends allowed me to maintain a very simple lifestyle, uh, put gas in the car. Actually, I didn't have a car at the time. I had a motorcycle. I couldn't afford a car. And so I rode my motorcycle to all my events that I was speaking at and all the places, and everybody got a kick out of that, the monk on the motorcycle. And, and so that was fun. And then, and then my father passed away, which was unfortunate, but he had a car. So my brothers and sisters said, well, who needs a car in our family? I got the car. So now I had uh, car insurance, which is like five times as much as motorcycle insurance. Uh, because motorcycle insurance doesn't cover much. You know, it covers the motorcycle, and then it scrapes you off the cement if you have a terrible accident. That's not very expensive. But then you had gasoline, and, and you, had, you had maintenance. The cars, cars are a lot of maintenance, especially old cars like I had. That was, came from Wisconsin, so it was rusted out from all the snow and salt and stuff. But it, I drove up in a car now, you know, and everybody was impressed that I had a car. And uh, so I was speaking and driving, and, and then I said to myself, you know, wouldn't it be cool to have a website, you know? And so uh, a friend of mine, who actually became a friend, had heard me speak and said, I will buy you a computer, but you've got to pay me back. You know, and, and uh, so I'm not going to give it to you, but I'll, I'll front it for you. And then you can take as long as you want, and there's no insurance or no, probably no interest on it. You just, whatever you need to do. I paid it off in a year. It was, a, it was an iMac in Bondi Blue, you know, and it was so much fun. And I got my first website in 2001, Urban Dharma, the website. And they say that every year online is like seven years on Earth. So it's sort of translate, you know, like cats, you know. So I've had a website now for over 200 years, and it's doing well. So we have like 1,500 pages. I've got seven or eight domain names that work as bookmarkers. So I have a domain name that'll take you to a page to get you started in this, and Dharma Talks, and videos, and YouTube, and ebooks and all that kind of stuff. So that was so that's fun. But that also needed money. I needed to have I needed to buy a program to make websites and then I needed to have web space. So I did that. Okay. So, so we can so I continued to slowly 
need more money. Isn't that the way life works? You think it should go the other way, you know? Uh, but it doesn't. You know, even when you have, like, no, no expenses to speak of, it still takes money. So I decided it might be time to get a charge card because I didn't have a charge card. I actually rode from Los Angeles to Wisconsin on my motorcycle without a charge card or a cell phone. Talk about somebody who's optimistic. Man. And it was just a wonderful experience. I did have a debit card. So I would visit ATMs along the way and get cash. I I was a cash kind of guy. As we know, during the pandemic, a lot of businesses stopped taking cash, just charge cards, because you had to hold the cash, and then the cash might have germs on it, and then they would get the germs, and then they would die. So they would say, no, just, it's only debit cards and charge cards. So I went to my bank, and I said, I want a charge card. And they said, okay, let, let's do a background on you. And they did a background. And they said, you don't have any credit. You come up zero. How can that be? Well, I don't have credit because I don't have credit cards, and I don't have, you know, car payments, and I don't have blah, 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 blah. They said, well, we can still give you a credit card, but it'll have to be a secure credit card. And so you have to start a savings account specifically for the charge card. And the money you put in the savings account will be your credit limit. So if you put $1,000 in, you'll have a $1,000 credit limit. And you have 2000 And you'll also be collecting interest on the savings account that secures your charge card. And you're going to get at least a quarter percent. How much better could it get? <laughs> I mean... And everybody's freaking about an inflation and you know, the credit's going up. And I'm thinking, maybe now I'm going to get some money out of my savings account. Come on, let's have like 10% something. God. So anyway, I got my charge card. And I had my savings account, I had my charge card. And, and I found it was really an ideal solution to, to you know, as long as you had discipline. That I, I would pay the charge card each month from my checking account, because everything's in the same bank, so I just transfer. And, and then I, I would never go into debt because I wouldn't overspend. And so far, so good. You know, I have enough money, and I spend as little as I can, and that's covered, and I don't have debt still. But I now have a credit score. Wow, I got a credit score. So how lucky am I? And I get, now I get emails saying, have you thought about buying a house? <laughs> you know? No, I haven't. So, so I'm going along and I'm starting to see, you know, this is really a unique American model for a Buddhist business. That everybody who works there is an independent contractor. They have health insurance. In a more traditional ethnic Buddhist temple, they have members of the congregation who are doctors and dentists and lawyers, and they will take care of the monks and the nuns. Okay. It works well until you have to go to the hospital. And then because the hospital costs a lot of money. And they don't, you know, the members of the congregation usually don't own a hospital that you can go to. They will also feed you. They have community meals. In the, in the Mahayana tradition, the meals are breakfast, lunch, and supper. It's a small meal in the evening. And in the Theravada tradition, the meals are breakfast and lunch before noon with no evening meal. Okay, which can take a while if you're used to eating three meals a day, it can take a while for a new convert and Buddhist monk or nun to get used to that tradition. One of my favorite stories is a monk 
in Australia who became a Theravada monk in Australia. So he was an Australian monk. And he was a vegetarian. And they ate meat. And it just put him into a giant conflict. The ethical aspect of being a vegetarian was the reason he was a vegetarian. He didn't want to take life. He didn't want to eat sentient beings. And yet, in the Buddhist tradition he had been ordained in, they eat meat. And they ate meat because they ate what was offered. You can't have a choice when it comes to food if you're in the Theravada tradition. They offer you food and you eat it. And you can't show a preference or a, a disgust or dis-ease over any kind of the food that you might get. So it can be really challenging. You know, if you want that second piece of chocolate cake and you can't ask for it and they don't offer it, how disappointing can that be? And I was at a, uh, a religious conference of monks and nuns in Shasta Abbey, Northern California. And one of the lay people went and admired an apple that one of the monks had and was about to eat. And now the monk couldn't eat the apple because the lay person had transferred the ownership from the monk to themselves not realizing that would happen if they touched the monk's food. So you never want to touch the food of monks, please. Let them eat first. Touch their leftovers, but not their main meal. So another monk saw the dilemma and had to re-offer the apple to the monk so he could finish his meal. So there's a lot of, like, food stuff that goes on, you know? And then one of the things I came up with was... In the Theravada tradition, they would go begging for food. They'd go from house to house, village to village, and they'd have the little food bowl, and they'd beg for food. And so what the people in the house or village ate, they got the leftovers. It's like dogs and cats today in some Asian countries. They get the leftovers. So now, you know, the food is made specifically for the monks because there's great merit in feeding monks. So the monks don't eat leftovers anymore. So, but they still eat meat and fish, and, and, and so now the Mahayana tradition, which I'm part of, and I, I, I've really cut my food intake now and when it comes to meat and other kinds to just minimal. Though I, I, I tell you, usually after I leave here, I go down to In-N-Out Burger <laughs> just to celebrate, you know. <laughs> So, but the, but the Mahayana monks, or in, in the Mahayana tradition, they weren't beggars. In, in China and Korea and Vietnam, they, they weren't beggars. That, you know, only the homeless would go beg, and, and so they weren't beggars. So they, they started monasteries, you know, where the monks and nuns would live apart from the lay people. And the lay people could come and visit for teachings and stuff and maybe offer food as well. But, but the monks, nuns didn't want to go out into the village and have to beg. Okay. Though some still do. So they said, well, okay, what are we going to do? We're going to have to eat. We're not going to eat any meat because they're sentient beings. We're not going to eat any fish because they're sentient beings. They have feelings. They breathe. They're born. They die, just like us. Okay. Well, I guess we're going to have to be vegetarian. And I guess we're going to have to grow our own food. So a lot of monasteries turn out to be half farm and half monastery. And the monks and nuns would go out and they would grow the food. What better work for a monk or nun than being a farmer and growing the food? And then they would eat what they've grown. And, and I know some of you will say, but, you know, broccoli is alive, and so is celery. So you're really eating things that were alive. And I came up with, well, as a human being, we have to eat things that were one time alive. But what the Mahayana chose to do is eat the lowest form of lifestyle that would support their life. Okay. So if I go to Theravada Temple for a, 
a special holiday or ceremony, I eat what's offered. You know, and if I get chicken, I eat the chicken. And if I go to a Mahayana temple, I eat what's offered, which is basically for monks and nuns, vegetarian. Okay. But I do ask for a knife and a fork, which drives everybody nuts, you know, because they can't find a knife and fork. They have to go through four drawers to find a knife and a fork for the American Buddhist monk who won't eat with chopsticks because he doesn't know how to eat with chopsticks. So I, it, there's always a challenge when it comes to food. And I, I, I did a wedding once uh, in Westminster. And it was a wonderful Vietnamese wedding. And, and they had, and the, the main course was steak. Everybody got steak. And then and where I was sitting, they brought me a beautiful salad. And I just kept looking at the steak. <laughs> Man. So sometimes it's good to be a monk and sometimes not, you know. So, so the eating thing can be a real challenge for people. And at our center, we do not eat together. We, that's, our stipend is designed to give us some food money. So we can go out and get our food on a daily basis. And we can eat in the morning, in the evening, and in the afternoon because we're a Mahayana temple. And when the Theravada monks move in to our temple to live and work at our temple, they eat evening meals too. And all that sort of tradition sort of, you know. So we're, I don't want to say we're relaxed in that, but, but, but we, we've sort of chosen an American way of living as a Buddhist clergy and teaching as Buddhist clergy because the Americans, which covers everybody, when they come to the temple or our meditation center, they have like one thing in mind, and that is meditation. For them, Buddhism translates into meditation. Okay, now there's Dharma, there's what the Buddha taught, of course, and over the years we've had many classes and retreats where people can come and give us donations. We ask for donations for the retreats because we have to buy food and feed everybody. And oftentimes in the old days they would just sleep in the zendo. They would bring you know, a sleeping bag and they'd sleep in the zendo and we get up like at five in the morning and we start to meditate and, and all that kind of stuff. And so it, we created an environment that allowed people to sort of taste Buddhism and get a feel for it and see how it could affect them in their everyday life. What does it mean to be disciplined? What does it mean to be kind and compassionate? What does it mean to have patience? and serenity in all the different situations we find ourselves in. How do we deal every day with a life that never seems as good as it could be? And I've been watching the news and watching Florida, and I'm going, my gosh, how long is that going to take to get back on track? How many people are going to be displaced and, and, and just going crazy with all the challenges that they find. And a lot of retired people are down there in their, in their trailers and condos and houses, and they've spent a whole life accumulating, and now they're, they're living the rewards of that accumulation, and it's all taken away in a couple days. I mean, it wasn't... Even I got a year to trans, transform into somebody else. It's like tomorrow I got to be somebody else because I got no place to live. I got no food. I've got no electricity. I've got no, 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 no. You know, man, back to survival. And I just thought about, you know, myself and, and my accumulation, you know, which is minimal compared to everybody else. Because I've lived in the same room at the meditation center for 27 years. And I finally got it the way I wanted. <laughs> and over those 27 years, people are so kind to me. Oh, I got this for you. Just a little gift. 
I got this for you, just a little gift. You know, I got stuff stacked to the ceiling, all the little gifts that have given to me over the years, the decades, you know. I had somebody just the other day that really liked my uh, YouTube channel, liked my videos. He makes guitars. He says, can I send you a guitar that I made? I said, no, thank you. I appreciate the thought. I appreciate the kindness. But at this stage of my life, I'm trying to let go and not accumulate. And, and so he understood. But I, it's funny how that goes, you know, that the idea of life is to get as much stuff as you can. The nicest car, the biggest house, you know, and, and all the stuff that goes along with being successful. And the idea for a monastic to be successful is to have as little stuff as you can. It's just like the opposite. What's important? The problem, though, the irony, the thing that arises by having less stuff rather than more stuff is everything becomes important because you only have four things. And they're the most important things in your life. If you have a thousand things, you don't even know half the things that you have. And you could care less if one or two of them is taken or lost or stolen. You know, but when you have four things, wow. So the mindset, when I moved into the center to start my ordination process, I had guitars, I had banjos, I had a couple keyboards. I was having a lot of fun learning how to play and playing and stuff like that. I sold them all. I gave them some away and sold the others. Now, I have guitars, I have banjos, I have ukuleles. Where did they come from? I gave them all away. Why do I still have them? Because the one thing I didn't give away was the desire to have them. It was the internal part that I never even thought about, you know? And they just materialized again, like magic. Wow. So you get to learn a lot living in a room, trying to be an ascetic and a renunciate, giving up all the stuff that you think you don't need, but still want. Okay. So now I'm in there, and I'm learning all this stuff, and I'm going to conferences now. And I'm going to conferences. They're inviting me to go to conferences and speak about Buddhism. And I'm going, wow, this is really cool. And a lot of Catholic Buddhist conferences. And I met a guy, a Catholic priest, who had been a member of Congress as a Catholic priest. And I don't remember his name now, but I'm sure it'd be easy to find on Google. And the story goes with him is that a bishop or the pope said, you have to choose. You can't be both. And I thought, wow, that is so cool. Because the conflict of being a religious person and a politician would arise all the time. You know? So he chose to continue to be a priest. I think that was probably a good choice. But I'm going to places like this, and there are people there that have decades of practice and experience of being a clergy person and have PhDs and all the stuff that they've learned and could communicate and do it eloquently. And there I am. And I, and I had to ask somebody. I, there was one of the guys who was co-director of this particular conference, and we became sort of friends over the period of the conference. And I looked at him and said, you know, I can't figure this out. I can't figure why I'm here and why I'm doing this. And he looked at me and said, why not? Why not you? <laughs> what kind of credentials do you need? You, you made it here. Somebody thought you were relevant enough to be invited to go to a conference and have actually something interesting, if not important, to say. So why not you? So as I keep going through this life and seeing you know, all the stuff, I'm going, wow, you know... But now I'm at a really interesting point, even though I still live in the same room and still live at the same center, and the people have come and gone. People have died. That's when you know you've been there a long time. When people die, 
you know? And when I was at the police department in Garden Grove as a volunteer police chaplain, I was there for seven years, a lot of people retired or they died. I mean, this is really weird. These are the people I started with, and after seven years, you know, half the people aren't there anymore because they retired. And I look at my life at 73, and I go, you know, there are a lot of people that aren't there anymore. You know, besides just natural aging, there's COVID, and there's hit and runs, and car accidents, and planes crashing. There's so many ways to die. And here we are today, taking it for granted that we're still here. How fascinating is life when they sort of push that aspect aside, somehow in your mind, that it's not, doesn't relate to you because you're still alive. Big, they had a big banner on New York Post online, the, t, the newspaper. The reason the queen died has been shared. I'm going, I wonder how, what did the queen, queen die of? And I, I read the article. The queen died of old age. <laughs> Who the hell would have thought? <laughs> that was the banner. We figured it out. We, now we know. Coming, I want to speak about the health insurance now, and I want to speak about the stipend. Okay, so I turned 62. And at the age of 62, I said, because of all the years I worked before I became a monk, I'm going to take my Social Security. And everybody said, no, don't take it too early, don't take it too early. But I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm not going to make any more money. It's not going to be much bigger. And, and if I take it now, I can talk to the center and say to them, you don't have to pay me a stipend any longer. I'm going to collect my Social Security. So I made the announcement at a staff meeting. You no longer need to support me. I'm going to be supported by Social Security, which is about the same as the stipend. You know? So they were all really happy, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, this is cool. This is what I had in mind. I intended for it to go in this way. And then I turned 65 and Medicare. And I made an announcement. You no longer need to buy me health insurance because I have Medicare. So the longer I stayed there, the cheaper I became as an employee. <laughs> you know? It worked out well. And, and what I found about the health insurance on old people is it's really expensive. When I was 64, they were spending 800 a month for my health insurance. That's a lot of money, you know? And... And so when I finally got to be 65, you know, uh, wow, they, another 800 that they had to work with that month and apply it to probably building maintenance, which turns out to be just as important. So the only time I've used my health insurance since I've had it was a couple years ago when a cat <coughs> bit me. And, and I was giving the cat a bath, and the cat did not like the idea of taking a bath, and it bit my finger, and my finger immediately started to swell, and pus started to come out. So I called up Kaiser Permanente. They said, you've got to come in right away. You've got to come in right away. That's a, that's a bad sign. So I, I came, I just, you know, so that afternoon I went in and, I, and they looked at me and said, you're going to have to make an appointment. We're going to open up a room for you here and you're going to have to go in for an operation. We're going to have to open up your finger and flush it out because it's infected. And if that infection gets into your bloodstream, you will die. And I go, man, really? It's a cat bite. No, it's one of the most... Um, deadly forms of bites because the cats have like needle teeth and they're carnivorous and they can go deep into the flesh, into the muscle, even into the bone. And so they can really inject it deep. And, and the only way we can get rid of it is to flush it out. But so th that evening I went back to Kaiser Permanente and I got my room and, and Rebecca... The woman who's co-writing the book with me, who lived at the center at the time, 
came uh, to keep me company. And, and I had no idea. I, so I got, I got my clothes, and I, you know, I put on the little gown. Where can I put my clothes? There's no place to put your clothes. Don't you have a locker that I can use with a, you know, a locker? No, 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 no place to put your clothes. Okay. So Rebecca said, well, I'll, I'll hold your clothes. <laughs> I'll take care of your clothes until you go into your room. Because this was like, right, get in there, get operated on, and to the room. So I'm in there, and I'm going, okay. So then they come up to me and say, okay, you, you have health insurance. We, we figured it out, and your copay is $1,700. Would that be cash, check, or charge? I said, well, do you guys take checks? Because I didn't have a charge card. You guys take a check, $1,700? That's about all I had. And I, oh, yeah, no problem. We'll, we'll take a check, sir. Write a check, huh? Okay. It's so businesslike, you know. Then they take me into the operating room. And I, and I look at the doctor who's about to operate on my finger, and he has put his initial on that finger so he knows what finger to operate on. Because apparently, sometimes, they operate on the wrong hand or the wrong leg, or, and so he was marking them. So I looked at the doctor and said, you know, do I really need to go under for this? You're just going to open up my finger and flush it out. Do you really need to put me to sleep? Because I have read horror stories about people getting too much sedative, and they come up and their brain isn't quite the same as it was when they went under. You know, and uh, can we just do like a, a local, and you can get me some whiskey? I'm thinking, you know, this is like the Old West, you know? Okay, I'm ready, you know. No, I'm sorry, sir, we're going to have to put you under. So, I, I, so they put me under, and then I wake up in the, in the room, the wake-up room, if you will, and Rebecca's there with my clothes, and the first thing I do is start my multiplication tables. Has my mind been screwed up, you know, by the anesthetic, you know? And, and it went well. I, I could still, I knew what day it was, I knew stuff was going on, and that I knew what time it was. And, you know. So... Like $1,700. And then I had two days of intravenous antibiotics just to make sure that the, all the infection was gone. This is a cat bite. Be really careful when you give your cat a bath. And maybe you shouldn't do it at all. I haven't given a bath to a cat since. So I was so glad that I had health insurance. Because if I had been a traditional monk and relying on the congregation to work on me, I, I, how would I pay? Would I, I guess I would have to get donations, and maybe the Buddhist center would have had to pay for that, you know, instead of the insurance company. And and so, the business of Buddhism is really interesting because the idea is to support the monks and nuns. Okay, so they can go out and facilitate the Dharma, whatever that means to you. If the Dharma means meditation to you, they're out there as meditation teachers. If the Dharma is what the Buddha talked about and, and taught, then they are Dharma teachers, and they're out there. And you can have lay Dharma teachers, and you can have ordained monks and nuns, and they're both doing the same thing, except one's like a Protestant and one's like a Catholic. Okay, so the Protestants or the Dharma, the lay Dharma teachers who are out there and have a family oftentimes and a regular job, and this is their part-time gig, is they, they share the Dharma. And then you have the monks and nuns, which are more like the Catholic monks and nuns. And, the, and their full-time job is to practice it's, and, um, and to share the teachings. And so, but the practice part is really interesting. Now, I'm reading a book about a Catholic monastery up in Big Sur. Kamaldolis, I think their tradition is Kamaldolis. And they're up every morning at 3.15. Their day starts at 3.15. That's the first prayer. They do five prayers a day. But then they have to work, too. There's work to be done, and there's food to cook, and there's dishes to clean, and all the stuff that goes on and keeping a place like that going. And they're up every day at 3 o'clock. I'm going, man. I got it made. I'm up at four now, sometimes five, you know, and uh, because that's the best time to be awake in downtown LA. 
But I, I go to bed like at 7.30, 8 o'clock. And how can, people say, how can you go to bed so early? Well, there's not much to do at night if you're a monk. <laughs> what do you do? Watch TV? Well, yeah, you can watch TV. You know, but, but pretty, you know, it, it, sometimes just going, getting a good night's sleep, seven, eight, nine hours of sleep, man, that feels good. Just rejuvenates you. You're ready for the day. You know, and starting early. When I was a teenager, I would sleep till three in the afternoon. Could do it easily. Now, you know, and I remember my grandfather used to get up at five, six every morning. I go, Grandpa, how can you do that? What do you do? Why do you get up so early? (laughs) And now I'm doing it. And I'm going, well, this is the perfect time to post on Facebook. It's the perfect time to check my email, to update my website. And then around seven, I got cats to feed. That's my morning exercise. I don't walk around the block. I spend an hour and a half feeding cats. I'm bending over, picking up, moving things, cleaning poop, going from yard to yard, playing with the cats. I get an hour and a half in the morning, hour and a half in the evening of physical activity because I feed cats. How lucky am I? No Stairmaster for me. So I, I, I see my day has completely changed as I have become older and still ordained. Then now, my focus is on how can I share the Dharma in an online way? Because COVID has closed our center for two years. People don't come to our center. And if they do, they're there a couple times and then they leave. You know, because the Sunday service is mostly Zoom now, and you don't be, need to be in the Zendo to watch Zoom on a screen when you can be home watching Zoom on your screen. And we don't have any classes because people aren't going to classes in person pretty much, especially our center is so small that they're all crammed in together. And people feel like it's suicide to learn about the Dharma in a small room with a bunch of people they don't know. And, and yet I find myself having a full day every day. I got so much stuff to do. I got three hours of cat feeding. I have two and a half to four hours of online posting. You know, I, now I'm on Instagram. I don't like Instagram. It's for young people. I don't know why. It's it, it just posting pictures of yourself. And I, I'm, you know, posting pictures of cats instead. Let them look at cats. They don't need to look at me. And then we got the book thing going, so we're going to need to promote that and need to have a website for that. And then I got my podcasts, which are on four or five different platforms. And then I've got my e-books, which I keep adding to for free download. And I got all this stuff. And so I got five, six, seven hours every day that I'm committed to doing something that benefits either humankind or catkind. And, and, and I thought to myself just the other day, how lucky am I? How many old people have that much stuff to do? You know? And important stuff. I mean, we all have stuff to do. We could be playing shuffleboard or something. But, man, to do the stuff I do and to get the feedback that I get and people want to give you guitars because they like your video, how lucky am I? And then I found... Just yesterday, and if you're on Facebook, you can go to my Facebook page and read the wiki page that I found. Somebody did a wiki page on me. Now, there's an organization called Wikipedia, which is an online encyclopedia, if you will. And somebody tried to post something on there about me, and they wouldn't take it. So this other wiki page... Is for people who can't get on Wikipedia. I made it to that page. And it really sounds good. I'm reading about myself. I'm going, wow, that's fantastic. How lucky was I? You know what I'm saying? Isn't it nice to be able to look back and say, how lucky was I to be in so many interesting and challenging situations to be supported by an organization who would encourage you financially, support you financially to go out into the world and make a difference. 
or at least attempt to make a difference or try to make a difference. How lucky am I that that happened to me? And it happened to me in my early 40s because I decided to take a chance on something I wanted to do that I knew nothing about. That there was fear and dread of the unknown and the future. How is it all going to work out? What happens if was one of the questions that continually ran through my brain. What happens if? How are you going to, how can it possibly, and all those things. And yet, years later, you know, you go, yeah, yeah. So sometimes if you have a passion for something, if you have a sincere interest in something, if you're willing to dedicate yourself to something, even if all the consequences at that moment are unknown to you, that little bit of spiritual courage that's necessary to take the first step and the second step and the third step, And the longer you keep taking those steps, the more you're able to see where you're going and how the darn thing works and how you can use it to to make your work a little more accessible and a a little more meaningful to people that might come in contact with you in person or virtually. And now most of the time it's virtually. So I don't even have to look good anymore. I can post old pictures of myself and say, that's how I used to look. What a guy. What a guy. And I've been eating Amy's vegetarian meals. I don't know if you've ever been to the, yeah. Whoa, really good. And now I find if I sweat a lot, I smell like Amy's vegetarian meals. (laughs) But I guess that's a good thing to smell like. So anyway, I think I'll stop there.